Hello and welcome. You are listening to Patrick Boyle on Finance, a podcast exploring ideas from quantitative finance, examining events occurring in markets right now and financial history to see what lessons can be taken away, including interviews with some of the most interesting people in the world of finance. To learn more about the podcast, visit onfinance.org. Welcome back to Patrick Boyle on Finance. Today we're going to talk about the use of leverage in trading and how it might affect your trading return. We'll look at a few lessons from the world of gambling and see what a trader might be able to learn from professional gamblers. We'll discuss whether anyone can easily make a living as a day trader. Okay, so the first thing we can discuss here is how smart are the people that you're trading against in the market. An awful lot of the online trading coaches like to tell you that you can spend 15 minutes a day trading from the beach and compound massive returns. In fact, I think I even saw a video a while ago of some guy like trading from a helicopter above London, which I imagine means a very slow internet connection, if nothing else. The reason that you'll get such great returns is that they're going to teach you some amazing tricks and that you're competing against what they call dumb money. The idea is that when you buy a stock, you're buying it based on their really smart system, but the person selling it is some old person selling it in order to pay for their retirement, and that person doesn't have a clue. I can tell you first off that most of the people that you are trading against are full-time traders and they're very smart. One of my friends that I used to work with is a physics PhD who became a trader after about 10 years of working on the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland. He now works at a large bank writing algorithmic FX trading strategies that truthfully will eat you alive if you don't know what you're doing. When he started at his current firm, a group of his more senior colleagues, I remember, complained to his boss that his trading was destroying their P&L. His boss told them that they had better just come up with better trading strategies then. Another two friends of mine opened a fund in London a few years ago and had most of the roads in the city dug up in order to install their high-speed trading lines. And I've asked them, in fact, to give me advanced warning if they're planning on moving office so that I can take a holiday and avoid the traffic congestion caused by all the roadworks. Another person that I know had an atomic clock installed in his office a little while ago. I'm not exactly sure what he's using it for, but these are the people that you're up against, or at least you're up against some people like these. They're very smart, they're very well capitalized, and they spend the money that's needed in order to consistently grind profits out of the market. And they're not at it for 15 minutes a day, they're there all day, every day. So when someone tells you that you can sign up for their course that costs $2,000 and start earning 2% returns per day right away, it's kind of like a guy at your gym telling you that he's going to show you a few tricks and that you can now step into the ring with Conor McGregor. I'm not saying that you can't win as a day trader, but it's unreasonable to expect it to be really easy, and you should be aware that the majority of day traders do lose money. Now, that doesn't mean that you will. It just means that you need to do a bit more work than some of these guys like to tell you uh, is needed. Okay, so next up, the topic of transaction costs. Lots of people commented that they trade for free on Robinhood, 
while people like me have to suffer transaction costs. Of course, you don't really trade for free. Whenever you look at the price of a stock or an option or any other financial product, you're usually going to see two prices on the screen. One is the price that you can buy at, and the other is the price that you can sell at. The buy price is always the higher one, and paying this spread is a significant trading cost. Now, often if you try to buy, we'll say, 100 shares at that price, you might only get a single share or one or two shares out of the hundred at the price that was shown and the rest of your order will get filled at a higher price or at a worse price because high frequency traders get in front of your order buy it ahead of you and then sell it on to you at this new higher price. A lot of retail brokerages are often compensated by high frequency trading firms to route their orders uh, to them so that they can do this. And this is just to tell you that nothing is free. If you think you're trading for free, you're not trading for free. They're just getting it out of you a different way. Now, it's worth noting as well that options have significantly higher commissions or trading costs, wider spreads than stocks do. And maybe one of the reasons that your online trading guru is suggesting that you trade options is that the brokers are possibly giving them some sort of kickback on the trading fees that you generate. Okay, so next up is my argument that the level of leverage that the trading gurus are recommending you use is excessive and will wipe out your account. A friend of mine wrote a behavioral finance piece a few years ago. He looked at how people bet on a computer-generated coin flip that they're told in advance has a 60% chance of landing on heads. The coin flipping experiment highlights how many of us, even those who study finance, struggle with how to correctly size trades. Prior to starting the game, participants read a detailed description of the game, which includes a clear statement in bold indicating that the simulated coin that they'll be playing with has a 60% chance of coming up heads and a 40% chance of coming up tails. Participants were then given $25 of starting capital. This is real money. And it was explained to them both in text and verbally that they would be paid by check the amount of their ending balance subject to a maximum payout, which I think was around $250. Participants were told that they could play the game for 30 minutes. And if they accepted the $25 stake, they had to just stay in the room for the full 30 minutes. The players were not randomly selected, so they weren't just people off of the street. They were mostly college students in disciplines like economics and finance, and some were young professionals at financial firms. So these were smart people. My friend was surprised to see that suboptimal betting came in all shapes and sizes. There was overbetting, underbetting, erratic betting, betting on tails, even though you were told there was a 60% chance of heads. There were just many things that players did that squandered their chance to take home the maximum win of $250. Only 21% of the participants reached the maximum payout of $250, which is well below the 95% that should have reached it if they just followed a very simple strategy like betting somewhere between 10 and 20% of their capital each time they played. 
one third of the participants wound up with less money in their account than they started with, right? Like you've been told there's a 60% chance of it coming up heads. You can bet on it. And that many people ended up with less money than they started out with. More surprising is the fact that 28% of the participants went bust. So they lost everything and received no payout. So that's 28% went bust. The fact that a game of flipping coins with an ex-ante 60-40 winning probability produced so many subjects that lost everything is frankly just startling. The average ending bankroll of those who didn't reach the maximum and who also didn't go bust, which was around 51% of the sample, was $75. And so that's sort of okay. They've tripled their initial $25 stake, but it still represents a very suboptimal outcome given the opportunity that was presented. Participants were generally very erratic with their fractional betting patterns. Sometimes they'd bet too small and then the next time too big and on and on. So what is the optimal strategy in a game like this? Well, if you're a professional gambler or if you know anything about gambling, there's a good chance that you've heard of what's called the Kelly Criterion, which is a formula that was published in 1955 by a guy called John Kelly who worked at Bell Labs. It was further developed and applied to casino games and financial markets by Ed Thorpe in a series of papers and popular books, most notably Beat the Dealer and Beat the Market, and I'll put links to his books in the description below. The basic idea of the Kelly formula is that a player who wants to maximize the rate of growth of their wealth should bet a constant fraction of their wealth on each flip of the coin. And that's defined by the function 2 times p minus 1, where p is the probability of winning. Kelly came up with his idea when watching the TV game show, The $64,000 Question, which was a big TV show at the time. Viewers of the TV show at the time used to place bets with local bookies on which contestants would win and which ones would lose. The show was produced in New York and it aired live there in New York and then it was shown three hours later in Los Angeles. Kelly read in the newspaper about a gambler in Los Angeles who learned the winners by phone and then would place his bets in Los Angeles before the show came out and the West Coast bookies weren't aware of this and they let him place the bets and he won quite a lot of money. And this sort of... Uh, brought up an idea in Kelly's head. He tried to solve a problem that if there was a gambler who had some sort of private wire who got advance notice of the outcomes of things like horse races or baseball games, things you could bet on, if these tips were not 100% reliable, but they were accurate enough to give the gambler an edge, how should this gambler size his bets? The gambler, he assumed, could bet at fair odds that had not been adjusted for the secret tips, right? So he's the only person who knows the, the winners and the other gamblers are setting the bets based on their perception of what the odds are. Now, a really greedy better might just bet their entire bankroll each time. The more you bet, the more you can win. But because these bets are not sure things, once in a while this gambler is going to lose. 
the greedy gambler is guaranteed to eventually lose everything because even if it might be rare, once in a while they're going to make a bet that wipes them out entirely. Now, on the other hand, an overly careful better might make the minimum allowed bet every time. This gambler is leaving an awful lot of money on the table. They're squandering their edge. This is a great opportunity that they're, they're missing out on. A gambler, he theorized, should be interested in compound return, a lot like the way an investor is. The best strategy offers the highest compound return consistent with no risk of going bust. So this brings us to a statistical concept which is known as the law of large numbers. The law of large numbers is a theorem that describes the result of performing the same experiment a large number of times. According to the law, the average of the results obtained from a large number of trials should be close to the expected value and will tend to become close to the expected value as more trials are performed. Now that's a lot like our coin flipping. So even though we know there's a 60% chance of getting heads, if we only flip once, you might not necessarily get heads. But if you flip 100,000 times, you should see 60% of the time it coming up heads and 40% of the time it coming up tails. Now, obviously, as a trader or as a gambler, this means that if you do have an edge and you do have a large number of trades, your returns over time should equal your edge less trading costs. So what does the Kelly system do? It sizes the bets to ensure that the player basically just stays in the game long enough for the law of large numbers to work. In gambling, lots of proportional betting systems exist and existed before Kelly. What's special about the Kelly system is that it grows your wealth faster than any other system. Betting more than Kelly does really well if you have an early winning streak, but if you overbet, you'll be quickly wiped out. And equally, if you underbet, you'll make money, but you won't do as well as you should have done. In the coin flipping example that we just gave, the Kelly criterion would tell you to bet 20% of your account on heads on each flip. So the first bet would be $5, which is 20% of $25, and you'd bet that on heads, of course, because the odds are that it'll come up heads. If you win, you then are going to be betting $6 on heads, which is 20% of the $30 that you now have. If you lost, you would have lost that $5, so you only have $20. And the next time you'd be betting $4, which is 20% of $20. And on it goes. So you're always just betting 20% of whatever your bankroll is. Now, as I mentioned, some of the Trading Guru videos that I looked at were suggesting using 10 times leverage in trading of the most volatile stocks that are out there. This implies that their trading ideas are significantly better than getting to bet on a biased coin like in the game that we're just discussing. It's worth noting that with the biased coin experiment, they capped your winnings at $250. And the reason for this is because someone betting the Kelly system who was quick could make an awful lot of money in 30 minutes. And in fact, I think you can find an online version of that game. And if you Google it, you can see how well you would 
would do without the cap. So can you use the Kelly criterion in the stock market? Well, there are many differences between the stock market and games of chance. In games of chance, there are distinct outcomes, things like heads or tails in the above game. This isn't the case for markets where the range of outcomes is a continuum. Stocks can rise or fall by any amount. Time in games of chance is broken down into discrete games, while time in markets is continuous. In the stock market, an investor can remain invested as long as they want to, and there is a non-normally distributed range of outcomes. In markets, transaction costs exist, and no one really knows the probabilities underlying a trading system, no matter how well they might estimate them in advance. In his book, Ed Thorpe hints that the most you would possibly bet in the market is half the amount suggested by the Kelly criterion. Such sizing would give significantly more volatile returns than his funds ever had, so I doubt that he actually did that. He also mentions that Bill Gross of PIMCO apparently learned the Kelly criterion back in 1969 from reading Thorpe's book Beat the Dealer. Uh, Bill Gross then went and played blackjack for a summer in Las Vegas using Thorpe's system and has gone on to say that its influence can be found throughout his investing approach. Not investing at all when you don't have an edge and investing heavily when you have a really good situation is characteristic of a Kelly better. While I wouldn't recommend using the Kelly criterion as a market investor, there are a ton of lessons that we can take from it. The most obvious and important one is that excess leverage will definitely wipe you out. That's something we definitely know. There was some confusion in the comment section of the CoffeeZilla video as well about compound interest. A lot of people didn't seem to think that the Soros Buffett returns of around twice that of the stock market over a 30-year period was much of a big deal, and they said that they could easily do much better than that. I put together uh, the chart that you see up there showing how a $1,000 investment would grow over 30 years if it's compounded at 10% a year or 20% a year. And as you can see, at 20% a year after 30 years, your $1,000 grows to $240,000 roughly. And at 10% a year, your 1000 grows to just under 18000 So a rather large difference in, in ending balances. And this is just the power of compounding. This is kind of why compound interest matters. It's why the trading guru promise of 2% a day is really obviously ridiculous, because that sort of sounds like a, a reasonable thing. Like if you say to someone, you can make 2%, they say, well, that's not so much. Um, but that small sounding daily return compounds out to, I had to do the calculation, 137,640%. Anyhow, don't forget to like and subscribe, and I will see you next week. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you're notified when a new episode is posted. Thank you to everyone who is supporting this content on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content, you can find more like it on YouTube, on the Patrick Boyle on Finance channel, or follow us on Twitter at Patrick E. Boyle. Thanks for listening. Bye.